Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Daily Friend Wrap. I am your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined today by Makone Maja. Let us get into the news of today. And the first thing we're going to talk about is a report from Afroforum about the state of the country's sewage treatment plants. So Afroforum looked at 140 sewage wastewater treatment works, which were releasing sewage uh, that had been treated back into the water supply. There are standards which these sewage plants are supposed to clean the water to a certain amount before they release it back into the kind of into, into the rivers and the natural water supply. And according to Afroforum's testing of these 140 uh, uh, ones that they uh, looked at, 81% um, of them did not adhere to the minimum standards of cleaning the water. In other words, they're dumping sewage, essentially um, not adequately treated back into the water supply, into the rivers, which then at some point will end up back in the drinking supply again. Um, they started their, their report at uh, the Vereniging's broken sewage plant, um, and their intention was to show the decay of the municipal sewage infrastructure over the last couple of years. Um, McCorner, this is, you know, one of those things that we can, that has, you know, very significant consequences, because if your electricity is off, yes, it hurts economic growth. Yes, it causes lots of knock-on effects and, and suffering for people. But when you're dumping sewage back into the water supply, you can cause very serious disease outbreaks. We've already had an outbreak of cholera due to a, a, a water treatment plant in Hamanskral that was not working correctly. Uh, what do you make of the story? Sure, yeah, those are real concerns you're raising there, Nick. I think I'm firstly glad to see that there's an independent institution out there that's doing research on the condition of our wastewater treatment plants. I've had a gripe for a long time with the Green Drop Report, which is a score or a report that the Department of Water and Sanitation puts out to rank and score the condition of the South African municipalities' wastewater treatment plants. But the problem with the Green Drop Risk Rating, which is a score the Green Drop Report put out, um, measuring the condition and the performance of these waste municipal wastewater treatment plants, is that it's hidden in a mirage of other irrelevant factors. So for example, you get a risk rating of say 60%, which is not too bad, right? The lower the score, the, the worse off you are, the higher the score, the, the, the far better you are. But the problem is that they use fine measurements to measure the condition of this piece of infrastructure that carries wastewater, right? And among them are things like capital management, financial management, technical management. What, if anything, do those indicators tell you about the actual true state of the infrastructure that facilitates um, sewage in municipalities? Nothing, right? But there's one factor in there that does, and that's the affluent and sludge compliance score. And that's the one that I would like to see the Green Drop reports focus on. And um, instead of um, weighing it across all those other indicators that are already listed, and then giving us a score that really um, conceals the true condition of wastewater um, treatment plants in South Africa. So I'm glad to see Afriform doing this. Um, they're not nearly where they need to be, 100 or 100. The, the, the number that you mentioned is not enough. I think we have far more than that. I think we have closer to 900 wastewater treatment plants, but I understand they probably have limited resources and, and, and that sort of thing is inhibiting the ability to conduct widespread research. But again, celebrating seeing independent institutions carrying out these um, treatments of wastewater plants and, and as well as drinking 
water plants in South Africa. But it's true. One of the things that Green Drop Risk Report or Green Drop Risk Rating looks at is the environmental impact of wastewater or lack of maintenance on wastewater treatment plants. And that's a score that's very concerning to me, seeing that there's a lot of leakages that are happening as a result of lack of maintenance. But also that this has been an issue for a very long time. There are reports that go as far back as 2005, flagging various um, municipal wastewater treatment plants, like Percy Stewart is one, for example. I think it's it operates around the Maruping um, area, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, but even wastewater treatment plants around some tourism areas of key importance in South Africa are not receiving the treatment that they that they require. Um, that shows you the extent to which a lot of these things fall under the radar. Um, so again, huge risks there and glad to see like independent institutions conducting research in that area. And again, bringing to the forefront and to the discussion, to the public discussion, just how um, under threat we are, just not, not just as far as um, sewage water is concerned, but also the leakages into our drinking water. Exactly. And I think, unfortunately, the only time that the story is really going to put itself front and center in the uh, news, in the, in the news cycle, is if there happens to be a spill in one of the big metros. Um, and I mean that in the sort of, not, not in some outlying area like Hamadskrab, but in, you know, sort of a middle class suburb or something like that, then I fear that that may be the only thing that it, it will take to, to, to get people actually to take some action on, on voting the situation. But hopefully we don't come to that. Okay, let's talk about our next story. And this is another report from an independent institute, this from the Institute for Security Studies, which was looking at South Africa's murder rate and has found that South Africa's murder rate is the highest it has been in 20 years, basically since the very bad period of the 90s when there was a lot of um, murders, particularly kind of related to, some of them were probably political killings that were misidentified as murders. Uh, but since sort of 2011, 2012, the number of murders in the country has gone up from 15,000 per year to 27,000 last year, 77% rise, which is absolutely crazy amount. Um, the murder rate has also gone up over the past couple of years uh, to about 15, 58 per 100,000 people, which puts South Africa at one of the highest murder rates in the world we are routinely in the top 10. Um, there have been increases in basically every province, although interestingly, Gauteng has not fared as badly as some of the other provinces in terms of its increase in murder rate. It's only gone up by uh, 40% in Gauteng. In other provinces like KZN, in the Eastern Cape and the Western Cape, it has soared. Um, as uh, In terms of a per capita rate of murders, Gauteng is now the fourth highest behind uh, the Western Cape and Eastern Cape, KZN, and then Gauteng forth. McCorney, uh, obviously this is not a great uh, uh, state of affairs. And, you know, once again, we're seeing something where Minister Big Kwele just seems to not be able to get a grasp on the situation. It's a massive number of people being killed per year. Sure, it is insane. But I think nothing captures cadre deployment better than having a former Minister of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestries go from being that to now insecurity minister of police. Uh, again, South Africa needs to go back to the basics. You cannot have a country with those insane levels of um, crime 
time, attracting investment and attracting capital, which will lead to growth, right? And that's why you see article after article coming out and saying that we're losing a lot of our high net worth individuals to countries like Namibia, where there's relatively very low levels of crime, as well as countries like Mauritius. So if we want to see economic growth in this country, it hinges on things like safety, which tend to fall under the radar, especially when you're having conversation over around the economy or economic performance. But yeah, it, this pretty much sums up cater deployments. And unless we get a handle on cater deployment, it's only going to continue to eat away the efficiency of the police service. Um, okay, let us get on to our last topic for today. And that is that a number of cardiologists are increasingly concerned about the implementation of the National Health Insurance Scheme. Um, a cardiologist at Linksfield Clinic who works sessions at the Charlotte McClake uh, hospital, Academic Hospital in Joburg um, said that NHI is the elephant in the room. He said, quote, why should we trust the government with our money when there are no successful blueprints? Money has been poured into Chris Harney, Baraguanath Hospital and Charlotte McClake, only for these hospitals to return to their former state of dilapidation. We have to ask why we must trust government, not just with money, but with ap aptitude and, uh, uh, and ability. Um, these concerns, however, have been dismissed by, I guess, the sort of chief bureaucrat in charge of implementing the National Health Insurance, Dr. Nicholas Crisp, who is the Deputy Director General in the National Department of Health, said uh, this pervasive distrust has to stop. And he said that it was uh, only with the private and public sectors working together that we could solve the problems in healthcare. McCorney, I am not a huge fan of Dr. Nicholas Crisp. Um, I don't think he's answered a lot of important questions about problems with NHI adequately, but uh, what's your take on this? I pay very close attention to the language that Nicholas Crisp refers or uses when he speaks about, when he speaks about uh, public health care, and there's a lot of entitlement there and a lot of tyrannical language being used about how people should spend their own money on their own health right there's just this claim that government thinks it has this level of control that is implied in this speech about how much people should be able to spend on their own health care i think to point people to i would point people to the irs submission to parliament on the nhi and one of the key items and takeaways i think people should um observe in that submission is this idea that government spends four percent of our gdp for example on public health care and it speaks about that as if it, it is mutually exclusive to taxpayer funds right and, and what the submission makes the case is that about 900,000 individuals in this country pay about 75 percent of the personal income taxes so you have roughly a million people funding 70 percent of government's revenue and so you cannot speak about those people choosing to use their money to spend on healthcare as if they don't have any interest in the public expenditure on healthcare because they are your, essentially, they are your source. They are the ones who are going to fund the NHI over and above what they spend on their own public care. So I worry about his rhetoric and I pay close attention to it, but I also think I'm, I'm quite fed up with this distinction being made between government expenditure and how much people spend privately on their own healthcare because government sources its income from private individuals. So essentially private individuals are already funding public health care, despite it being very poor. That's not on the individual that's on the government squandering um, public health care funding. 
exactly. And if you think that national health insurance can be implemented without it turning into essentially a, another nightmare version of ESCOM, except this time not with electricity but with people's healthcare, I think you're deluding yourself. Um, anyway, that is all the time we have for today. Hope that you found the show interesting. That's a wrap.